a teacher named Jeremy Treat, who's both teacher and author, depending on uh, the audience. But he has written, From the bruised heel of Genesis 3 to the reigning lamb of Revelation 22, the Bible is a redemptive story of a crucified Messiah who brings the kingdom through his atoning death on the cross. That is a thick statement. There's a lot there. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, the Bible is a redemptive story of a crucified Messiah who brings the kingdom through his atoning death on the cross. That's the storyline of the Bible. And from Genesis forward, the epic of God's word is telling that story. Now, sometimes in the storyline of Scripture, you come across books, sections of the text, that can be trickier for Bible readers to situate in that large epic. And I think one of the more challenging parts of Scripture to situate in that timeline is something like the wisdom literature of Proverbs. In Proverbs, we're not dealing with narrative and prose. These are not prophecies from prophets. We're not dealing with apocalyptic visions. The book of Proverbs contains wisdom sayings. Situated together in units. All kinds of overlapping themes and spiraling subjects from chapter 1 to 31. How should we think about Jeremy Treat's statement that the Bible is from beginning to end this epic story. And yet we know there are books in the Bible that are not story-like. One way to think about it is that the sayings of Proverbs are to direct the lives of the people in the grand story so that the wisdom of God is for the pilgrims on the way. Where do we find ourselves? Well, I'm not located, and neither are you, in a particular biblical narrative with a character name. But we are not yet at the consummation of Genesis 22. So that means you and I live between Genesis 3 and Revelation 22, just like all the characters after Genesis 3 did. And this means that Proverbs is for our instruction as pilgrims on the way. We are reminded, especially in our summer series of these two chapters, of chapter 13 and 14, that Proverbs is wisdom from God for the people of God, instruction for our Christian lives. So yes, it's different from narrative. These collections of wisdom sayings are the words of Solomon, but much more importantly, the words of the living God to shepherd our lives unto the end. We need to revere the Lord and to love His Word. We need to walk the path of life in the light. And that means Proverbs is not a dispensable or extraneous book. It is given by God as a heavenly gift. It's light and truth for the mind and heart. Now sometimes truth can jolt you a little bit. Truth can have that effect. You can come across some sayings in Proverbs and rather than feeling good, you might say, ouch. You know, it's that kind of thing where you read through some of these statements about how the Lord calls us to act and to walk before Him. It can be like squinting into a bright light. And you think, oh, that kind of hurts, actually. Sometimes truth is like a glass of water in the heat of life, bringing refreshment and delight. And I think the wisdom sayings of God in a fallen world will have those various effects on us. Our bodies need to be nourished and revitalized by proper food and drinks. 
Our souls, ever more so, need to internalize the truth of the Scriptures that we might feed on what our Redeemer has given us to shepherd us. Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus said to the evil one on the day of temptation, a quotation from Deuteronomy 6, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when we come to Proverbs 14, we once again have words proceeding from the mouth of God. Words for our hearts and lives to direct us unto the reign of the Lamb in Revelation 22. We're in that story and we need instruction. Because the snares are many. And the lies abound and delusions multiply. We need clear thinking and truth. So we come to Proverbs 14. To another unit from the mouth of the Lord, inspired by His Spirit in verses 19 to 22. I want you to notice the beginning of our passage and the end of our passage for a moment. It says the evil bow down before the good. The wicked at the gates of the righteous. And then at the end of verse 22, it talks about people who were devising good. But at the beginning of verse 22, also those who, had, who devise evil. So evil and good both begin and end our passage. These are part of how we are isolating units and trying to notice connections so that we can see that these Proverbs are saying a particular verse. is just not arbitrarily placed. But there are thoughtful and literary connections and framing. Between those outer two verses, there are two others. Look in the middle. Verse 20 and verse 21 both speak about neighbor. The beginning of each verse uses the word neighbor. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor. And then in verse 21, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner. One of the emphases in our passage today then is going to be heart toward neighbor, but surrounded by the notion of what evil and wickedness in one's life and neighbor relationships will lead to. Not only in verse 22 going astray, but what will that ultimately lead to in verse 19? Humiliation and defeat and judgment. We see in verse 19 the humiliation of the wicked. Let's look there together. The statement says in verse 19 that the evil bowed down before the good. The wicked at the gates of the righteous. In order to understand the second part of the verse, we're going to just carry over that same verb. Sometimes in poetic writing, a verb might be introduced at the beginning of a line and you're to imply it in the second part. If we were to just make it explicit, here's what it says. The evil bowed down before the good and the wicked bowed down at the gates of the righteous. Bowing down before the good is a picture of humiliation. But I want you to notice the contrast and the location. The contrast is evil and good and then wicked and righteous. Same groups of people. The evil are parallel with the wicked and the good are paralleled with the righteous. Therefore, the good and the righteous are not those who come to life with their own inherent goodness and righteousness because of works and striving. That is not what's in view here. The righteous or the good in the Old and New Testaments are those who trust the Lord. They don't look to their striving and works. They believe his promises and ultimately in the Old Testament storyline, the promise of the Redeemer whose name would be Jesus. The good or the righteous ones are those considered such because of their love for the one who is good and the one who is altogether righteous, the Lord himself. 
And yet, this location is intriguing because it talks about gates. And we don't normally think about gates having the um, economic, commercial, and social setting that they did in the ancient world. People go to meetings at locations and offices and businesses. In a city, gates were places known for formal transactions and decisions. Gates were an important spot because it was an entrance to a city. It was highly trafficked. You can imagine people couldn't go in in or out except going through those gates. And therefore gates, as one writer put it, were the center of community and legal life in a city. Not in the center geographically spaced, but central in the goings on of the life of the city. And so therefore, city gates are a place of legal jurisdiction or decisions, matters of transaction economically and socially, a place where matters of justice could be considered, places where guilty might have some kind of verdict or pronouncement over them, where accusations against a person might be heard and then refused. In verse 19, the evil bow down before the good and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. This has in view a kind of formal, official triumph of the righteous over the wicked. The evil bowing down has that posture. And at the gates of the righteous signals some kind of climactic, grand triumph of the righteous and the good over the evil and the wicked. This is a perpetual problem in a Genesis 3 world. The tension between the malicious designs of the evil or the unrighteous or the wicked and the longing that those who are the righteous have for evil to be vanquished, for the wicked to be overcome, for the evil one himself to be defeated. This statement in verse 19 might be quite shocking to the wicked. Given their own perceived cleverness. If you um, were to read verse 19 to someone committed to wickedness. And it says the evil bow down before the good. They might think to themselves that will never happen. Not with the empire I've built up. Not with the invincibility I've been able to express. Not with the plans and cleverness I've got. That's never going to happen. A kind of perceived delusion of invincibility. So this verse might shock the wicked utterly. But this is also a statement that the wicked will not escape accountability. Verse 19 here is a warning to all the wicked that all of their machinations in the world and all of their devices and plots do not have the final word against the righteous. The Lord will judge the wicked. This is a position in place of judgment. The wicked bowing down at the gates of the righteous. That's what's happening here. It's the the day the wicked would most dread. Where what they thought they could escape, they would not escape. What they would never thought would hold them accountable becomes the place of reckoning. The gates are the place of reckoning. The writer of Ecclesiastes laments the situation in the world. He says in chapter 316 of Ecclesiastes, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said to my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. 
He notices the corruption of the age and injustice throughout the world that no matter where sinners are, there will remain the temptation to exploit and abuse and misuse and deceive and manipulate and and oppress and the, the various actions that the evil can conduct in the world. The writer says in Ecclesiastes 3, here's what I remind myself, that there is a day appointed where the wicked will bow before the good at the gates of the righteous. Ecclesiastes ends in its final chapter and verse saying the end of the matter all has been heard fear God and keep his commandments for this is a whole duty of man for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil verse 19 is therefore to be that kind of utterly shocking statement to the wicked but also give tremendous hope to the righteous so while The wicked should tremble before the reality of a day of reckoning where there would be the kind of account that a righteous and just God would meet out on that day. One meeting out of justice that would glorify his own name and vindicate his people. We are also to find great comfort and hope in that day as the believing community. One writer puts it this way. God's image bearers will be relieved to know That the wicked are not invincible. And they will not prevail. The righteous might look at all the deceptive plots and devices of the evil. And think well look how those are getting ahead. And look how they seem to go without accountability. And will there be any day of reckoning. And the message of the scriptures is. The all seeing God who is perfectly wise and good. Will apply his justice perfectly on that day. And it should both relieve the righteous. And cause the wicked to fear. Sometimes even in this life we get glimpses of that. When justice happens and the wicked are exposed. When evil falls and righteousness triumphs. The Lord in his common grace. And in answers to prayer no doubt. Will often demonstrate foreshadowings of that final day when the wicked fall. I think about the story of Esther. In the story of Esther, where evil Haman, with all of his malicious devices, had planned a widespread extermination of Jewish people. And yet, in a reversal of plans and in the good providence of God, Haman himself was undone by the very gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And Mordecai and Esther and others were vindicated and delivered by God. And the wicked fell. In a final end times way? No, not fully. But signs of defeat throughout the Bible's storyline foreshadow that we can trust the Lord to perfectly mete out justice and the righteous can feel the kind of relief, at least abstractly and theoretically, if not yet experientially, that the day of relief and vindication shall come because Christ will come. There could be an allusion to the Old Testament here in Isaiah 60, uh, or a connection rather, uh, with the same language in Isaiah 60, looking to these truths like Proverbs 14. In Isaiah 60, 14, he says to the persecuted people and oppressed people and afflicted people, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. These statements in the Old Testament are to stir the people of God for righteousness. Because if we are short-term thinkers, 
Evil devices might seem appealing for short-term gain. Nobody would devise evil ways and mechanisms if they did not conceive of some kind of gain they get from it. But verse 19 is warning you to not think about short-term gain. Consider long-term loss. This is not the wager to make. Okay? With the mindset of the wicked. Thinking only in a short-term matter. Rather, Isaiah 60.14 as well as Proverbs 14.19 are thinking about the grand consummation when all things will be set right. That day will come. In fact... One writer points out that, isn't it the case, dear Christian, that in verse 19 we see its ultimate fulfillment in Paul's words to the Philippians, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is that not, friends, the ultimate consummation and fulfillment of Proverbs fourteen nineteen? That the evil bow down before the good. Indeed the wicked will confess that he is Lord. The good one and the righteous one himself. Verse 20 recognizes. That among the evil doers of the world. Are treatments toward others that are sadly observed and continue to be the case. I want to notice a specific specific example that the Proverbs writer gives us. In verse 20, it says the poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. I must hastily make a note here that this is not commending the attitude of verse 20 at all. It's making an observation. It's saying what you might often find to be the case in the world that the people who have the most possessions are the most popular. That those who have the most and seem to at least present themselves as having the most compel a kind of intrigue and mutual interest and admiration. It says here the poor is disliked even by his neighbor. This is a principle here of what you see operating in the world. That people relate to others so much of the time based on what I can get from the relationship. And if I perceive someone... Who can't seem to benefit me in any particular way. Well then enough and away with them. And here the poor is labeled what they are. For having very little to offer. And not much to enrich or improve. The lives socially or politically of those who are looking for such gain. And so what's their view of their neighbor? Despising. Contempt. Dislike. That's what it means here to dislike. It, it, it means to reject with contempt. Ah, you know, you're, you're, this is not a love of neighbor. This is a dismissal of neighbor because neighbor can't be used for one's game. Nothing, at least from the material angle, can be noticed. Of course, this is a poor evaluation of image bearers, isn't it? No pun intended. This is a awful and unbiblical vantage point to view people who would then be treated without dignity, worth, and respect. Matthew Henry is right when he says, this shows in this proverb not what should be, but what is the common way of the world to be shy of the poor, but very fond of the rich. Because the contrast with the rich says the rich has many friends. Well, I wonder where they would all come from and why. 
And rich and wealthy people have been honest on the record over the years in cultural publications saying the distrust and suspicion they feel in their hearts for all of the relationships that have been developed. Do they really love me and care for me as a person? Or do they only want to be with me and around me because of what I have? Truly, it is the case that in a fallen world, what somebody possesses might often determine their relationships and popularity. And those who have little may find themselves with few relationships. And the, and the rich, having many friends, if we could call them that, many friends, who might see not a person to be loved who simply has money, but rather money to be desired that that person happens to have. You might look at your neighbor and think, well, I don't need a relationship with them. How can they help me? What good will knowing them or helping them do me? Chapter 19 in Proverbs says in verse 4, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Proverbs 19.6 says, many seek the favor of a generous man, but everyone is a friend and everyone is a friend to him who has gifts. Like moths to flame. That's the image that comes to mind. Great possessions, resources, and wealth. And then many so-called friends might appear. In chapter 19, 7, all a poor man's brothers hate him. And how much more do his friends go far from him? When the Proverbs say things like that, they're not saying that ought to be the case. They're observing what happens in a fallen world. And we ought to lament that sinners treat sinners this way. A poor man disliked by his neighbor? It doesn't say a man disliked by his neighbor. The reason he's disliked is because he's poor. And then why does this other person have many friends? Well, because that person is rich. Now, don't think for one second that this is just something more generally the case among the secular unbelieving world who are captured by those kinds of things. Have you ever read James chapter 2? In James chapter 2, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus. He says, If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your church, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and you pay attention to the one with fine clothing, and you say, Sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, Will you stand there or even sit down at my feet? Have you not? made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Oh my. So James 2 is very direct and confrontational that even the believing community might be tempted to view other people in a worldly materialistic way. And James says, my brothers, don't be partial like that. These are image bearers. These are people to be treated with with respect and dignity. And here you are going to make distinctions among them based on their appearances and what they seem to portray in terms of wealth and notoriety. And to the wealthy man, it's like, oh, let me go all out for you. How imitating actually is that of the way the world thinks? James says it ought not be this way. You have then, you have become judges with evil thoughts. So to evaluate people James is saying with his question of James 2.4, to evaluate people with such distinctions and materialistic categories is an evil way to look at others. It's not neutral. James says it's evil. And he warns the believers against doing it. 
Here's what he says in Proverbs, not James, but the Proverbs writer in chapter 14, 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner. Notice how connected that is with what we just read. If verse 20 says the poor is disliked by his neighbor, then okay, Bible, evaluate that posture toward me. If the poor dislikes his neighbor, how should we view that posture? And he says in verse 21, it's sinful. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner. Because if your heart is too busy despising your neighbor, you won't love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself excludes a posture of heart of despising and contempt for another. And my goodness, we live in a culture of widespread contempt. It's so easy to join in political and economic contempt across the board. Treating people condescendingly because of how you think they see different issues. How you think they see different matters in society and culture. How they see things politically. It doesn't say whoever despises his neighbor who happens to, uh, you know, agree with him in every way. This is neighbor who is to be loved and who is an image bearer. And this is instead a posture of despising. Friends, if, if we're discipled by cable news networks, we will be trained to despise people who disagree with us. We need the truth of Scripture to shape the way we view our neighbor. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner. That is an implicit way of then calling for repentance. If we are engaging in a sinful posture and attitude, then let us seek to turn from that and repent of that. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but he who is generous to the poor is blessed. Blessed is he who is generous toward the poor. So rather than showing contempt and trying to discard other people based on some superficial evaluation of them, there is a posture of openness and love that shows up in action. Friends, it's not just the thought that counts according to the Bible. In 1 John, he says, let's not just love in word and in thought, but in deed and in truth. Like love others in a way where it is showing up in our words and actions. To love, not just to say we love them, but to show our love for neighbor. Blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Here's an example of showing love. Here is the person in need, passed over and ignored, neglected and despised, shown contempt and condescension by others rather than treating them with love. And then here comes the believer. Lord willing, open hearted and compassionate. Not trying to make prejudgments and evaluations, but instead looking at a state and circumstances worthy of compassion. Blessed is he who is generous to the poor. The book of Proverbs gives us some ways of thinking of our posture toward the needy. For example, Proverbs 21.13, listening to them, listening to them. This verse says, chapter 21, 13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Another posture of being generous with one's resources is given not just in this verse, but chapter 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. That's a promise. Chapter 31.9, defending the rights of the poor. 
Open your mouth and judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Well, why would that be the case? Because the rich and the powerful may, me, may use various deeds and mechanisms to their advantage that oppress and trample the poor. Think of James chapter 5, where the wages were being denied those harvesting the fields. And these in the fields were needing food and resources and sustenance. And yet the evil, wealthy, and powerful were refusing to give what was rightly belonging to those. And therefore, they were committing injustice against their neighbor. What's the warning in James 5? The Lord hears the cries of the oppressed. So the wicked could not comfort themselves thinking no one knows or who's strong enough to do anything. The Lord is called Almighty for a reason. The Lord is strong enough, and they should fear him. Blessed is he who is generous to the poor, listening to the poor, having open hearts and hands of resources, defending the rights of the poor. He says here in chapter 14, 21, that person who has a heart toward their neighbor in this way, that person is blessed. Now, why would they be blessed? Let's ponder that for a moment. Because you might be thinking from a materialistic standpoint, well, they would have less though because they're being generous with their possessions or, or it might entangle them in this situation or that. And so that could be maybe unsavory or difficulty from certain perspectives. And so what's this blessedness? Why does it say blessed is the one generous to the poor? The generous person is blessed because while he possesses money, money does not possess him. That's a blessed state to be in. The generous person holds his resources loosely and he's free to love his neighbor because his commitment is not a love of money. It's hard to love your neighbor well when your love for money is top. What a blessing indeed not to be captive to the golden glittery things of the world. This person is blessed. He's blessed also because he's not engaging in short-term thinking. He's storing up treasures in heaven. He recognizes anything I earn I can't take with me anyway. Think of the parable in the Gospel of Luke of the rich man who had gained so much and whose crops and harvest were so plentiful that he said, I guess my only option here is to just build bigger barns. And so those plans were underway and the Lord came to him, you fool, this very night your souls demanded of you. You see, he thought he was engaging in wise stewardship and from a worldly perspective it might have been impressive, but the Lord's evaluation was, you fool. What a blessing not to be captivated by the gold and glitter of the world and enslaved by a love of money, but rather freed to love neighbor with generosity. The generous person is blessed also because they're stewarding resources that belong ultimately to God anyway. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And we're told in 1 Timothy 6, Paul's words to the rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up therefore treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that they might take hold of that which is truly life. The generous person is blessed by the Lord also because the generous person has realized it is more blessed to give than to receive. They have tapped into a secret in relating to other people that generous people are happier people. Money has not made them miserable. And the good news of Jesus has freed them not to live for it. Their biggest goal is not therefore getting as much as they can, but giving to others in need. When we read in Proverbs 14, 
verse 20, that the poor is disliked even by his neighbor, what should the response of the believer be who stewards the blessings and resources of God in this age and who claim to worship him and no other gods from the heart? In verse 21, one who lives in a way that is blessed with a right view of money and a right view of neighbor because of a right orientation of the heart to God, a love of God and a delight in God and a treasuring of Christ. So that the treasures of this age rightly lead us to think, listen, it's just money. Money isn't everything. But Christ, Christ is everything. To live is Christ and to die is gain. There are some results based on our plans that we have to consider. All of the heart postures and the deeds and the planning. A question for us in verse 22. And the results from what we devise. Do they not go astray who devise evil? And the answer, of course, is yes, indeed, they do. Don't they go astray, those who devise evil? Indeed, they deviate from what is right and straight and proper. They deviate into what is evil and all of the consequences that follow. Those who devise good meet steadfast love and faithfulness. What it's putting before us, friends, is that all of us go through our lives devising and planning and premeditating things. So I wonder what your plans are. This is an emphasis of contrast. Going astray, those who devise evil. Or meeting steadfast love and faithfulness, those devising good. Let's think about the one who devises evil. This is premeditated wickedness. And yes, people might respond spontaneously in their hearts and instincts with an evil word or deed. Spontaneous wickedness is not in view here. It's in view elsewhere in Proverbs. Here, devising evil means it is your plan. That's actually what you premeditated. This is contrasting the end result of planning to do evil versus planning to do good. This is premeditated evil. It's the idea of going down the wrong path. I wonder what you're devising in your life right now. I wonder if with your jobs and vocations, if you're working honorably and with integrity, or if you have plans in motion to get money in any dishonest ways. I wonder if there's a friendship or a relationship in your life that you're devising, that you know would not honor the Lord or produce love for neighbor. I wonder if you have any plans and deeds and words involving revenge and slander, backbiting and gossip. Have you devised ways to advance yourself at the expense of others? Do you have activities undergoing that exploit others and take advantage of their weaknesses in order to esteem yourself above all? Friend, what you need to know then, you will not keep your feet on the path of wisdom by devising evil. What does he pull together here? Don't they go astray who devise evil? Friend, you can't follow closely behind the Lord Jesus Christ devising evil in your life. The sign ahead says visibility is poor and the bridge ahead is out. That's what you've gone astray on such a path to see. And the drop off is steep and deadly. If you can't keep your feet on the path of wisdom while devising evil, it should horrify you. The idea of having in your heart plans in motion with word or deed that would be wicked toward neighbor. Now you're called to love your neighbor, not to devise evil against your neighbor. I can't devise evil against my neighbor and love my neighbor at the same time. That's impossible. So you're going to choose what you're going to serve. 
You've got to commit yourself to the Lord to love him and to love your neighbor, or you will, in your words and deeds, reveal the God of your heart. Namely, will one in the mirror. One of the non-negotiables in following Jesus is that you stop devising evil. You're called to love your neighbor. Not always going astray from a path can lead in a, a horrible direction. This is So if we conceived in our minds thinking, well, you know what, if we were on a a nature trail and we were going and we saw forests on this side and that, listen, going astray from the path might lead to all sorts of interesting discoveries. Look what's on this bush and look at that animal in the distance. This is not that kind of metaphor. This is leaving the path for what will be ruin and disaster. This is going astray unto ruin and destruction. And those who devise evil have left wisdom, life, and deeds in the light. And they've been committing themselves with word and action to darkness and the consequences that will follow. But the end of verse 22 and the last part of our passage this morning is another contrast, isn't it? Those who are devising evil are contrasted with those who are devising good. So you can be shrewd and thoughtful in your planning for good. That's what he's commending here. And why would he be commending that? Because of the result that's appealing. Meeting steadfast love and faithfulness. That means in your path, here's what you would come across. Here's what would lay in store for you. Not only the blessing of God, but I think steadfast love and faithfulness even expressed from God among image bearers and relationships. That there is blessing. These are, I think, catchwords to try to capture an idea that's opposite ruin, that's opposite disaster, but instead something that would be desirable and enriching for one's life. And that is the result of devising what is good. Living with premeditated love. What if we all thought of life this way? When we wake up and we are planning in our day To act and speak to others with words of love and mercy and compassion. We're like really deliberately doing it. I'm going to intentionally, not spontaneously, but I'm premeditating to walk in love with the people in my household, my neighborhood, my workplace. I am going to, no matter what they do, I'm not going to make my obedience to Jesus contingent on someone else. But what I'm going to do, and as far as it depends on me, I'm going to decide and act in ways that are premeditated love. Then friend, you are in that way sowing and you will reap steadfast love and faithfulness. This is calling us to not just give mental assent and verbal agreement to things. It's easy to read things from Proverbs and To not see where the full response lies. You see Jesus being Lord of heaven and earth. Summons us to come before him. That with all that we are. And all the realms and areas of our lives. We would live in the glad submission of Christ Jesus. One preacher puts it this way. That interpretation. Is not just carefully reading. But reading submissively. I want to think about that for a moment. Proper interpretation is not just about reading carefully, though we want to. When we go through passages together and we're thinking about sentences and we're noticing a contrast with this or that. And here's a question or here's how the opening verse and the last verse have some interesting uh, connections. All of that could be the fruit of careful reading. But we are called to be submissive to the words we study. 
Interpretation is not just about reading carefully, but reading submissively. This writer says, we're not there to master the text. The text is there to master us. And obedience is part of right interpretation. If we handle the text by noticing what's there, seeing other references in Proverbs, seeing what theoretically would be really great that's the case, and then walk away from the text unchanged and unsubmissive, we have not rightly understood the text. Our obedience to it, our glad submission to it, is part of our interpretation of it. Because to fully understand means we are coming before the Lord Jesus with all of the areas of our lives, praying that his will would be done and we would be turning from every wicked thing. And friend, that's my, that's my plea for us this morning. That we would not have a life gone astray, devising evil against neighbor. Despising our neighbor because of some worldly evaluation. But that we would look in the mirror of God's word and our heart before it and plead for the Lord's grace and the fruit of his spirit to show up in our words and actions. That we would be marked as people of love. Because on the cross, the Lord Jesus took all our shame and sin. He did not hold us in contempt and say, no mercy for you. Instead, the cross is the display of the blazing compassion of God and the mercy of God. And oh, that the good news of the cross would shape us into people of compassion and mercy. Oh, that the Lord Jesus who reconciled us to God by his perfect atoning work would shape our lives with this news in the way that we are living in peaceable relationships, seeking to live reconciling ways with others as well. That the gospel we profess would truly mark our daily lives and that we want it to. That we plan for it too. And that we are deciding and thinking even ahead of time how to walk with words of, and actions of love with our neighbor. Let's stand together as we pray.